It is my responsibility right now to introduce our speaker for uh, this morning. You have, may have heard the statement that imitation is the finest form of flattery. In 2010, I went to Tabor College to play college soccer. Our speaker this morning in 2010 also went to Tabor College to play intramural soccer. Um, those first couple of years, I decided the Lord had called me to ministry, started to get a uh, degree in Christian ministry. My friend couldn't help himself and, dis- and, and discovered that he was also called to ministry as well. Um, along the way, I wanted to go to do an internship in California, which led to the job of where I was most recently at before coming here. This friend once, once again couldn't get away, so he came with me not once, but twice to Mountain View Church in Fresno, California, where we did internships together. It just seemed like our lives had been interwoven throughout college. He, he just so badly wanted to be my uh, roommate our senior year of college, so I said, fine, I guess, right? And if that wasn't enough, when he heard that I was getting married in July of that year, he had to one-up me. And he got married in June, just three weeks before that. Uh, my friend this morning has more uh, degrees than a thermometer. Uh, he has his uh, BA in Christian ministry. Uh, he has a Master of Divinity uh, from Denver Seminary, THM as well from the same institution. He's working on uh, a PhD um, in Anabaptist history. So, um, and, but in all seriousness... Um, uh, there's another statement from scripture that says there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And you know that I have been joking up until now. This is one of my friends who I am, uh, I have been waiting for about 18 months to introduce uh, to you. He is one of your sons here at Bethesda. Um, he is married to his wonderful wife, uh, Rachel. They have two children uh, together, um, Cora and Robin, who I believe are here somewhere. Um, but would you introduce, uh, would you welcome in me introducing my friend and your son, Ryan Lowen, to the front as he preaches this morning. Good morning. Thank you, Aaron. I've never had an introduction quite like that. I hope that I never have it again. <clears throat> And I would uh, take issue with the order of some of those. I wonder who is following who, but thank you for having me this morning. It is my pure joy to be here before you, to be able to share God's word with you. Uh, I can't begin to express how awesome this is. This morning, as I was walking around the building thinking about uh, things that I did as a kid, wandering the halls... um, as we were running around up there trying to get our, the battery pack situated, I remembered that in that very hallway behind the balcony there, which seemed a lot bigger, I, I don't know, did you guys shrink it or something? Uh, after church, I and uh, Josh Hofer and Nathan Reinders and Spencer Gross, the lights would be off and we would sprint all the way across the hallway and sprint back. And wouldn't you know, of course, at one point, uh, Spencer Gross and I just slammed into each other and fell to the floor. And then at that moment, looking at each other like, are you okay? Are you going to cry? And I think we did cry. 
And I probably started first. But we cried, and then, then we got back up, and we ran again back and forth down the hallway. Uh, this place has just so many memories like that. The library, spending hours in there looking at books and uh, developing as a, as a young Christian. Uh, this is the place where my faith began, where it was nurtured. Uh, we sang about the heroes of the faith. Uh, this is the place uh, where that is true for me. Uh, Sunday school with Pat Jones and uh, Jeff and Sherry Decker. And then as uh, in Awana, memorizing verses that I still hold dear and true in my heart uh, that have, uh, there's no greater gift than you, that you can give a kid than that. And then uh, growing up, going to the sold-out center as a high school youth, going to Bible study with Wes Nelson and, and being poured into by such godly people, uh, I owe a debt that I can't repay. So thank you so much for being faithful to the calling. Continue the good work of ministry at Bethesda Church because it transforms lives and it's good. Would you pray with me as uh, we dig into God's word? Heavenly Father, thank you for your servants here at Bethesda. Thank you for the work that you're doing in this world. Thank you for the work that you're doing uh, in our Mennonite Brethren denomination at Tabor College and here in the Central District with uh, uh, Bethesda Church. God, thank you so much for raising up people of the faith, for the faithful people who have gone before us, who has handed down the word of life to us and taught us in the way that we should go. God, I pray that we would have the boldness and uh, the courage to walk in that way. God, as we look into your word and we look at Jesus, your son, who makes everything right, God, I pray that we would be encouraged, we would be uh, uh, strengthened in our faith, we would know that you are the only way to the Father. Jesus, I pray this in your precious name, amen. We talked about, uh, Aaron brought up the idea of degrees, and uh, in academics, I've noticed that it's really interesting how people in the biblical studies or theology, uh, it seems like we all, when you get to know us, we all have like a certain uh, um, sci-fi obsession. And uh, so actually just last week, I met somebody who their uh, science fiction obsession was Battlestar Galactica. She had written a book on Battlestar Galactica and faith. Um, we have conversations all the time in my office about the Lord of the Rings. Uh, there are numerous ethical dilemmas drawn from episodes of Star Trek, as you might imagine. And here in our midst we have a bona fide Star Wars nerd, Aaron Garza. I would challenge anybody in this con congregation to try to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with this guy with Star Wars facts. Uh, he is the king of Star Wars trivia. Now, uh, what's fascinating about these movies, I don't just bring them up for fun, uh, is that they all have uh, uh, this pattern of 
the sequels being much, much worse than the original. I mean, it seems like that's how it is with movies in general. If, you, if there's a really good movie, you can guarantee almost always that the sequel will be a flop. I mean, Star Wars, the prequels, and the sequels were awful. It seems like when humans design a, pure, uh, a, a piece of art that is truly wonderful, uh, every attempt at uh, copying that is just a shadow. In our passage this morning, we see the ultimate reversal of this. In Romans 5, uh, which is the passage for today, Paul presents Jesus as the sequel to Adam, the much better sequel, the second Adam, uh, who is so much better than Adam, who through all things are made right. So read with me from Romans 5, starting in verse 12. And we're just going to read verse 12 for right now. <clears throat> Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, I only want to take it one verse at a time because uh, Paul has a tendency to pack a lot of information into a tight area. And I want us to be able to, to walk through it without going too fast. Uh, so right away in verse 12, as you can see, uh, we are confronted with the hopeless reality of our fallen situation. Death is the only endpoint for all of us. There is no way out. To summarize Paul, death is universal. Why? Well, because sin is universal. He makes this case with three steps. Sin, number one, sin came into the world through Adam. Unlike me, if you've been here for the last uh, uh, couple months, I think, uh, you've been going over the story of creation, Adam and Eve, the serpent, the curses, and although it doesn't state it explicitly in Genesis, Paul states it here for us that Adam introduced sin into the world. Before Adam and Eve ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, things were good. Evil was not present in the world. And this is really difficult for us to imagine because we can't imagine a world in which sin doesn't exist. I mean, it's quite plain to us. Think about it. At the heart of every relational problem that we have is sin. In our relationships with one another, the way that things aren't, the, the reason why things aren't the way that they should be is because sin is with us. And maybe you experienced that this morning. We've been hurt or hurt by someone else. It's at the heart of our own issues, our own internal battles. As some people say, the, the demons that we fight within ourselves. Uh, this is at uh, the heart of our own character issues. It's really hard to develop good character. It takes intentional effort. Uh, if you've never considered doing that kind of introspective effort, then you most likely have been just carried around by the winds of culture. It's at the heart of our own issues. I never realized this until I became a husband and a dad. The people that you love the very most. Uh, my wife and kids, I've never been so impatient, at least it seems, in my life. Uh, just uh, the, the, the people that you love bring this out. It, you recognize within yourself because you love those people when you are wronging them. 
So it's at the heart of our relational issues with one another. It's at the heart of our own internal battles. Uh, But sin is also uh, true of our relationship with God. We are at odds with God because we often desire something other than what he has uh, for us. In fact, every sin of commission or omission against ourselves and others puts us at odds with the one who has created us. As you remember from Genesis 1, the way that we were designed was in his image. We were created in the image of God, and so were our brothers and sisters. And so when we abuse God's creation, this is an affront against the creator himself, whether that's ourselves, because we were created in God's image, or others. Sin corrupts ourselves, others, in our relationship with God. There is no way out. So first we saw sin came into the world through Adam, and it's, uh, the second is death is the consequence of sin. I mean, it, uh, as you remember, in the garden, God warned that sin would lead to death. Uh, and this is the harsh reality we now face. But also notice that this is the point at which the serpent directly contradicts God. The serpent works with the truth. Satan works with the truth. But there are certain things that he just has to straight up contradict. And I think the, the reason is because we would find his lies so uh, unpalatable if we were to believe them. What does he say? You will not certainly die. What does he have to do? He has to get rid of the consequences. If there were no consequences, you wonder if the first couple would have uh, uh, engaged in the sin that they did. Isn't it sad that the only thing that keeps us from plunging headlong into sin is oftentimes the consequences that are attached with it? I have to point this out because our society is fixated with removing the consequences from sin instead of actually dealing with the sin itself. And I don't think it's just in our society. I think it's a tendency within ourselves. I think that this is one of those areas that we need to be more disciplined with in our use of technology, for example. People say some of the nastiest things to one another online. Why? Because it seems like there's anonymity. There's a distance between us relationally. And so it seems like there's not uh, the consequences that would be associated with sin. There's no accountability. Furthermore, people use the internet to look at pornography because there is a sense of anonymity and no accountability. Too often we believe the lie that there are no consequences for the sins that we commit. Sin damages ourselves. It damages us, and it damages others. But the the consequences of the sin that naturally occur are not all. There is a much bigger problem. The reason you don't sin against God is because of the consequences What does this say about your relationship with God? 
I think it says the same thing that it would say about any other relationship that we have. Like the first couple, it means that you really want to disobey rather than obey. And you will do it if it, if it doesn't hurt. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, but God is true to his word. The consequences that he declared are real, and death is present. Death is the consequences of sin, and there is no way out. So sin came through into the world through Adam. Death is the consequence of sin. And now death spread to everyone because everyone sinned. I think it's safe to assume that the existence of a literal Adam uh, is, is the truth because both Paul and Jesus talk about Adam. And it seems that they believe in the existence of a literal Adam. In 1 Corinthians 15, 22, uh, Paul mentions again that in Adam all die. And in Ephesians 2, 3, that we are by nature children of wrath. This is what theologians mean when they use the term original sin. I'm not sure if you've heard that term, uh, original sin or original guilt. That the guilt. That the guilt and sin of Adam have been passed on to the rest of humanity. Now, the careful reader, and I've heard this objection at, uh, numerous times, uh, the careful meter, reader and listener might ask, uh, why should I be held accountable for Adam's sin? It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem just that I would be held accountable for a sin that somebody else committed. This has even led some people to deny original sin. However, while it is true that sin and death are the result of Adam's sin, we cannot pretend to be innocent bystanders as if we've done nothing wrong. We all choose to sin of our own free will. I know it's not popular to say today, even in church, probably not this church, because we're supposed to be affirming of others, uh, but the Bible makes this point abundantly clear. We are all guilty of sin. Not only because of Adam's sin, but also because of our own choices. It's twofold. The Bible is a wonderful book. It speaks through stories, poetry, wisdom, literature, a variety of different things, and every genre tells us the same truth. I know we don't like to hear it. Consider some of these verses. In Genesis 6-5, as part of the story of Noah and the flood, uh, it says this, "...the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth." And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Isaiah 53, 6, which is prophetic literature. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Ecclesiastes seven twenty, which is wisdom literature from the Bible. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Psalm fourteen three, which would be Hebrew poetry. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. In the Gospels, Jesus himself uh, takes with one hand as he gives with the other. Uh, in Luke eleven thirteen, he says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Even looking outside of the Bible, we see that this is true. 
G.K. Chesterton famously commented that original sin is the only Christian doctrine empirically verifiable. Why? Because everybody sins. We know that original sin is true because we see it all the time. I mean, and that's why the phrase that is common in both secular and uh, religious circles is, uh, nobody's perfect. It's true. This is accepted by religious and non-religious people. Even if we don't like it, we think it's unfair. We don't understand it. The fact of the matter is that it is indeed true. We are all guilty of sin in Adam and in ourselves. There is no way out. Let's keep reading in verse 13. Verse 13, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. So should people be judged guilty if they don't have access to the law? This is a wonderful question. It seems like a reasonable excuse. And Paul, in verse 13, grants it. However, he clarifies that they are still sinning, even if it isn't as serious as Adam's. And so this has led the Bible interpreter to question, what on earth is going on here? It seems like he's contradicting himself. Well, Paul has already dealt with this issue a few chapters earlier in Romans 2, 14 through 16. And I will just read that, uh, because I think that that is a better explanation than I can give. In verse 14 of chapter 2 of the book of Romans, Paul says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Even without the law of Moses, the deeper law of God written on our hearts and on our consciences leaves us without excuse. Sin leads to death. There is no way out. Four years ago, I was teaching a class on Christian worldviews, and um, I was a brand new professor teaching a brand new course, diving into a brand new topic of Christian ethics, and I raised one of the most important ethical questions. How do we know when we've crossed the line? How do we know when we've uh, done something wrong? I waited a bit. One of the braver students uh, answered. She raised her hand and said, well, we have laws in this country. Duh. And I, so I then pushed a little bit more. I asked a follow-up question. Uh, so if there is no law, does that mean it's okay? Without hesitation, she said yes. And I find that very tragic. Do you and I live in a world where the ultimate standard for good and evil are the human-developed laws of the land? Ladies and gentlemen, man-made laws in this country do not define sin. And at times, in our fallenness, we and other nations of the world have passed laws that actually make sinning easier. Do not use the law of the land as your ultimate standard for living. 
ground your life with Christ. Even Israel's God-given laws didn't suddenly make things sin. They were sin well before that. But the law was used as an objective standard to show us where sin was. It provided accountability and punishment for those sins. But even God-given laws were not exhaustive. I love the way that Paul puts it in Romans 1 in his list of vices or list of uh, evil things. He says this, uh, he, he includes in that list inventors of evil. Several other translations capture the meaning, they invent new ways of sinning. Just because it's not in the Bible doesn't mean that it's not sin. If we are honest with ourselves, we know when we've sinned against God. Sometimes we suppress that conviction to the point of deceiving ourselves. Other times we compare ourselves to others to justify our own sin. Um, But in the end, the sin of Adam and our sins inevitably end in death. No matter what we try to do, the outcome is still the same. Because of sin, each one of us is speeding toward a cliff and there are no brakes. There is no way out. But there is a way out. There is a way out. In the midst of this hopeless picture, Paul uses Adam, the one who got us into this mess, to give us hope. He shows us the similarities and differences between Christ and Adam in this passage to show us the way out. Let's look at how this is possible. Uh, Go ahead and jump down to verse 18. Take notice of how Paul shows us the similarity here. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. One of the ways that we know the emphasis of Paul and other biblical writers is the way that they repeat themselves. When you notice repetition in your Bible, this is a good way of, uh, uh, of maybe highlighting or bolding because uh, they didn't highlight or bold to help us. Um, in fact, uh, paper was expensive. So when they are, paper and writing in general were expensive. So when they repeat themselves, they're doing it at a cost. And it's to emphasize what they're talking about. The first similarity is the one action. For Adam, his act of sin condemns the world. We've seen that. But for Christ, his one act of righteousness, that is his atoning death on the cross, justifies us. The second similarity that we see in verse 19 is the one man. Adam is the one man who made all sinners. And Christ is the one man who makes us righteous. Luke puts it in Acts this way, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Actually, that's Peter who he's quoting. Jesus is not just one way among many. He is the one man. The prophet Muhammad is not the one man. The Buddha is not the one man. In a world that says, you do you, or uh, different strokes for different folks, We cannot allow ourselves to water down this point. He is the only way out. Look at verse 20 and 21. Jesus reverses everything that Adam's sin has brought about. Verse 20, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
One of the easiest traps that we fall into is the expectation that more rules will actually fix us. That if we just establish more rules, we can fix other people as well. Uh, If this were the case, then in the Old Testament, when God gave the law at Sinai, uh, Mount Sinai, when he gave uh, the people of Israel the law that we have in uh, the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, the the problem would have been fixed. Moses would have come down with with the tablets and everything would have been bliss from then on. The problem runs much deeper than what any law can fix. The law helps us diagnose the problem. It helps us see where the problem is if we've deceived ourselves. But we need something else to heal us. It's not the right instrument. Mike Bird said in his commentary, the law can count sin, but it cannot counter it. Instead, we need the grace that is only available in Jesus Christ. He is the only way to righteousness and eternal life. He is the only way out. Now let's jump back to verse 15. Take notice now, instead of the the similarity, the contrast between Adam and Jesus. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. First, the contents of what Adam and Christ bring are different. We've seen this already. It's hard to miss. Adam brought sin. But what's equally hard to miss in this verse, based on Paul's repetition here, is that Christ brings the grace of God. Looking at the verse, he uses the words free and gift, uh, well, together, and grace. Uh, He repeats himself. Now it might seem a little overkill, but in the ancient world, uh, gifts were thought of as transactional. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And we kind of live in this kind of world today, but I think we're more comfortable with the idea of a free gift. But in his time, the expectation involved reciprocity. If I give you a gift, then by nature you should honor me. And uh, you would then need to uh, respect me, be loyal to me. That's the world that Paul lives in. So he's trying to draw our attention to the free unmerited nature of this gift. In other words, we don't deserve it. Christ does not save us because we've earned it, but because of his love for us, he saves us. He is the only way out. Look at verse 16. Not only are the contents, the grace and the sin, different, but look at the results. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. He gives us the bottom line here. That is... The just judgment of God is over all people, and Adam's sin resulted in our being declared guilty. That is the result. But Christ's gift resulted in our being declared righteous. Christ's work uh, doesn't just simply cover the sin of Adam. It's not just balancing the scale, so to speak. 
but it covers the many trespasses. It goes beyond. It covers all of our sins, freeing us from our hopeless situation that we've made for ourselves and one another. Listen closely. In Adam and in ourselves, we will only find sin, condemnation, and death. But in Christ, we regain an innocent standing before God, and we are given eternal life. He is the only way out. So what happens now? Let's uh, bring it 2,000 years later, uh, after Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. And heaven heaven knows uh, how long ago it was for Adam and Eve. Uh, What does this mean for us in our day-to-day? Well, God promised us um, that sin leads to death. He promised us that in the garden, and we see this playing out every day. Sin results in death. If you have never decided to follow Christ, do not wait. He is the only solution to the problem of sin and death. Not only this, but those who choose their sin are actually working against God because of our corrupted, sinful actions. We are at odd with God's original design for us. I'm not sure if you've ever thought about it in these terms, but the way that God created the world was good, and our sin, the sin that we cling to, that we uh, uh, commit or leave undone, the things that we leave undone, those things run counter to the way that God created the world, his original design for us. And therefore, because we are uh, um, hurting the things that God has created, ourselves and uh, others, the image, those who are created in the image of God, we are enemies of God. We are attempting to overthrow his creation with our sin, and we are deserving of his just judgment. But earlier in the chapter, Paul mentions, but God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The good news is that we can be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. If you have not started following him, please begin today. For others of us, this story is very familiar. Um, so familiar, in fact, the story of Adam and Eve uh, oftentimes just, well, and Jesus, unfortunately, oftentimes become just a checkpoint in our convictional uh, framework, the, our belief system, our Christian worldview. And uh, it's just the thing that good Christian folk are supposed to believe. But maybe it doesn't impact the present or the future. Please understand that this is more than a set of beliefs about the past. It is the story of the present moment. This is not some story about Jesus that we've checked off a list, but this is something that is pertinent to our day-to-day, moment-by-moment, because Satan slowly works on us by blinding us with our own desires and lulling us into this false sense of security, and we end up being okay with socially acceptable sins, with hidden sins. Too often we allow ourselves to believe that if we can manage the consequences, then we're okay. 
that if we can get rid of the consequences for our sins, then we can engage in those sins and we become content with pet sins, thinking that we have defanged and declawed them, when in reality we are opposing God and believing the voice of the serpent that echoes down to us, you will not surely die. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot keep your sin. As we follow Christ, we must oppose sin in all its forms and cling faithfully to Him. This part is not optional, brothers and sisters. The wonderful news of the gospel is that through Jesus Christ, we are reconciled to God, our Creator. Though we, have, uh, li- though we are living in a fallen world, we are declared innocent. We are justified in God's sight. And we wait expectantly until that day when Christ returns or we are raised with Him in the last day, completely holy, glorified, and standing in the breathtaking presence of God. Let us not be an affront to our Creator in the day today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are indebted to you for our existence as you are our creator. We are indebted to you for our sustenance as we are sustained by you by the power of your word. We are indebted to you for our salvation. Thank you for Jesus Christ who takes away the sin of the world. Lord, I pray now for the congregation here at Bethesda. I pray that they would be serious about the struggle against sin. I pray that you would give us wisdom and foresight in looking at the things that our culture feeds us. Lord, I pray that we would not become content with pet sins. I pray that we would not become content with just removing the consequences or attempting to remove the consequences. God, give us the wisdom for knowing how to deal with sin itself through Jesus Christ. Let us not become complacent, but allow us the courage, the boldness to address the sins in ourselves. Thank you, thank you, thank you for Jesus Christ and for his justifying work on the cross. I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Bethesda Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can find us online by visiting our website at www.bethesdahuron.com or you can find us on Facebook and YouTube at Bethesda Huron.